another part. What is this? Episode six. Today is April fifth, twenty seventeen. Um, I'm here with Amy Berger. How are you? How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? This is cool. I don't. We should tell your listeners that we met at Farm. Yeah, we met at uh, goodness gracious, PA Farmstead. There we go. In Maryland. Yeah. Can I ask you how did you how did you figure out that that was a place? Like how did Um, you how do you how did I find the farm? Yeah, how did you find the farm itself? Yeah. Um, I'm a member of the nonprofit organization that Sally Fallon runs called the Weston A. Price Foundation. Mm-hmm. And um, they put out a call for volunteers to come help a couple of years ago. And um, I think I knew about the farm before then. I was I went on a tour. I, th- I think I found about it found out about it through the foundation. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. See, I found out about it. Okay, so Hours and hours of like digging and watching like Joel Salatin videos. Um, like her farming techniques are almost like it's akin to his, especially with the chickens, the way that she moves them around as far as how, how they graze and everything. Right. Is there a benefit to doing it that way? Like, oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. It's better for the chickens. First of all, you know, they get uh, fresh pasture every day, different bugs to munch on, you know. Do not, the listeners out there, don't be fooled by this vegetarian fed gardens. Chickens are not vegetarians, they are omnivores. They're supposed to eat bugs and grubs and worms. They're supposed to eat animal products in addition to their grain on the grass. So it's um, really good for the chickens to be moved around to different um, different parts of the land, but it's really, really restorative to the land itself because we forget that the manure, all the chicken manure they leave behind becomes fertilizer really good for the soil. It's the same thing with the cow manure, but for those chickens to be moved around, um, you know, they poop a lot and then they move and that poop is left. It gets rained on, it gets stepped on, it rehabilitates the soil. um, And that land is left to rest and to regrow and all the grass comes back. And so the chickens are rotated through many, many different parts of the pasture and the land kind of um, rehabilitates itself. It's a, it's a restorative farming instead of a destructive and depleting farming, like in the big. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a real community too. Cause I was uh, watching, I can't remember what the farmer's name was, but he's into restorative farming, but um, he's also involved in this really big group. Like uh, I think it's uh, uh, permaculture. Uh, goodness gracious. It's escaping me. Regardless, like that's that's a really big thing now. And um, as far as restorative farming and 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 um, trying to bring back like uh, a healthy culture to the the soil, because um, I've heard Natasha Campbell McBride talk about this, and she goes that there's like the bacteria that you see in soil almost mimics our gut bacteria as humans. And um, when when you when you really think about it, uh, I guess the soil would need a, a diverse uh, diet as well, right? Wouldn't they need for there that's, to be certain actually, animals grazing in this area? And 
Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, that the soil actually needs a healthy diet. I mean, people don't realize soil is not just dirt. It's not this inert, dead thing. It is teeming with life. We can't see it because it's microscopic, but the soil is teeming with bacteria, with microbes. And a lot of this stuff um, decomposes organic matter, which again, regenerates the soil. It literally creates new soil. And in addition to that, these microbes create is where the plants get it from you know it has to be in the soil they have to take it up i mean like the plants create it themselves too but it's this entire um diverse ecosystem that we really only see a teeny tiny fraction of when we just we just look at the plant that's coming up out of the ground but the soil itself is we can almost think of it as a living thing because it really is it, it it most certainly is the way that it is it's described by her i couldn't do a good enough job on this podcast to even like try but i'll get everybody hip all of my viewers everybody go check out natasha campbell mcbride um she's like you know what's funny as far as like culinarily my my idols in the the culinary world they're mostly women but they all have this weird uh fringe i i want to call it like hippie mentality but there, there's a there's a bit of like um some quirkiness and it's it's definitely a, a extremist um but but they they've all been vindicated lately as 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 it pertains to like uh, the scientific uh literature that's coming out with uh fat healthy fats and um and um lean animal i've heard that before as far as lean animal protein being not the best for you um and uh and it's a few other things that like has surprisingly come out to i guess redirect the story like as told by americans as far as food is concerned so it's exciting to know about these people and to hear their philosophy and then now like find news that is is kind of true you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's um yeah, I wouldn't say it's extreme. It's unconventional is what it is. It goes against what we've been told for so long and what we're used to hearing about fats bad for you, especially animal fat being bad for you. You know, some of these pioneers were saying the opposite, you know, 30 years ago and they now been totally vindicated like you said. I mean, whether it's that saturated fat is not bad for us, egg yolks, butter are not bad for us, um but also like you were saying with the microbes, the the importance of the bacteria in the soil, in the food, and in our body. I mean, that's why the fermented foods and cultured foods that, you know, dairy, like keep for all those kind of cultured and, and fermented dairy products, they're so important. And um, it's almost like a couple of people have known this all along, and now the actual science is catching up and, and proving them right. They've known they were right all along, but now the science is actually there to say that that, that it's true. Um. Is that do you because uh, you're a nutritionist, right? So do you make like diet plans for people at all? I don't do individualized plans. Like I don't do a meal plan, you know, hey Nat, this is what you're gonna have for lunch next Tuesday. Mm -hmm. What I do is um tell people about the kinds of foods they can eat and the kinds of foods they should avoid. Um, because it, it does no good for me to spell out in exact detail what you should eat if you're traveling or you're at your mom's house and the exact food that you were supposed to eat for that meal on that day is not available. You have to learn how to make the right choices no matter where you are. 
um, I just, I just don't believe in meal plans. You know, what if, what if next Tuesday comes and you're not in the mood for the pork chop I told you to have? Mm -hmm. um, you have to find some other things. So um, I, I give recommendations. I give are very much totally individualized and customized to that person, but I don't give actual meal plans. The reason why I ask is because like you listening to you talk about uh, healthy bacteria, cultured foods, fermented uh, drinks and, and whatnot. It reminds me of myself, but do you put a, an emphasis? Do you place an emphasis on probiotic foods or in, enzyme-rich foods at all? Like when you sit down and discussing things with people? Um, I don't usually, if it depends on the person. Um, my specialty is low carb, low carb nutrition, mostly for uh, type two or type one diabetes, uh, PCOS, weight loss, um, high blood pressure, and, and especially neurological like cognitive function. So I specialize in low carb. I don't necessarily emphasize all the fermented stuff, but um, I do, uh, I mention it. I mean, it is important, but I don't, for the people who come to me that are either very sick or very, very overweight, the fermented food is not the most important place to start. Okay. Um, as far as the low carb, I want everybody to kind of understand what low carb is. Could you like explain Mm, briefly what that what that means like what low carb is be brief um low carb is basically when you cut way way back on the carbohydrate you eat and and that doesn't mean just obvious sugar like cookies and cakes and pies it means any food that's high in starch because all of that turns into sugar in our body so bread pasta potatoes rice oatmeal all of that stuff, when you cut way, way back on that, flip a switch in your body and there's a fundamental change in how your body is fueled, how you are making energy to just get through your day. Most people are totally carbohydrate dependent because we're constantly eating carbohydrate all throughout the day. We wake up, we have cereal and juice or a whole grain muffin or a bagel. Um, for lunch, we have a sandwich. Maybe there's chips or we snack on crackers and pretzels. For dinner, we have pasta. I mean, it's an endless intake of carbohydrate. When you take most of that out of your diet, because your body now does not have enough carbohydrate to run on, it has no choice but to run on fat instead. And it will run on dietary fat from the foods you eat, but even better, it will run from your stored body fat. This is why low carb diets are so good for fat loss. And they're not appropriate for everybody. You know, I don't think everyone needs to eat this way, but low carb diets are really, really helpful for a lot of people. But that's the and main said thing it, is it just, it changes the way your, your entire body is fueled. Yeah. I've noticed the difference. I wouldn't say that I'm low carb. I do limit, I limit carbs because I don't know. I, I feel the difference now, now that I've been doing this for so long, it's like, well, eating extremely high, high fat. I wouldn't say low carb, like the way that I describe it or I, I describe how I eat, um, I, I I do place an emphasis on getting healthy fats in, but it's less of it's less of a like a, a sugar Nazi, because um, I know a lot of people well, I mean, that can get that way. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of people who get that way, and not everybody needs to be super super low carb. I mean, you could eat a hundred grams a day of carbohydrate, which would not really be considered low carb, but compared to the amount that most people are eating, a hundred is not that high you know, 75 to 100 grams, a really low carb diet might be 50 grams or less or, you know, 50 to 75. But um, 
that's much, much lower than most people are eating. What's a, what's, what's one of your favorite carbs? Do you, do you eat uh, a lot of carbs in it? What's your, what's your threshold? I don't eat a lot of carbs, but I am definitely not one of the sugar nuts you just talked about. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do eat chocolate. I eat ice cream every now and then I have bread. I mean, I'm not zero carb. I just um, limit it. So what's my favorite? I, I do eat dark chocolate almost every night, like an 88% squares, but um, I just don't. What's funny about that is like uh, dark chocolate is high as that fat. Yes, you know yeah, it's it's high, much higher in fat than it is in sugar. Um, what do I? I'm trying to think of. I don't keep a lot of stuff like that in my house, but if I'm out, you know, if I'm at a friend's house and they're serving dessert, I'll have it. Mm -hmm. You know, but I'm not I'm not diabetic. I'm not dealing with any severe medical conditions. I mostly do uh, low carb myself for weight control. I used to be much bigger than I am now. So, um, you know, if I have a piece of something now and then, it's there, there's not that much consequence to it as long as I really do keep it under a certain amount. All right, so now. Oh, I can't, I can't hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. So am I back? Can you, you can hear me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Perfecto. Okay. So I said that now that we're on the subject of carbs, what's your feeling about raw milk as far as uh, it's in the diet of someone that you would consider low carb? Good question. Um, it depends. Milk does have some sugar in it. It's the natural lactose, the milk sugar. It's not like it's added sugar. Um, depending on somebody's individual carbohydrate tolerance, a lot of people don't do well with milk, but they do much better with cheese because cheese has much, much less lactose and it's mostly fat and protein. They, they also maybe like cottage cheese, even yogurt, because yogurt in the culturing and ferment, the fermenting process, some of the lactose is consumed by the bacteria that actually culture the yogurt. So the, the yogurt has a lot less um, milk sugar than liquid milk. That being said, depending on someone's individual situation, they can probably handle, wouldn't want to see them drink like half a gallon a day, but a cup or two, not a problem for most people. But again, it depends. Like if somebody has really bad um, blood sugar regulation, really bad out of control type two diabetes, they're probably better off staying away from milk. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I always wonder that because I come in, I get, I get raw milk all of the time. And, um, uh, but 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 you you your pets drink it right? Your pets yeah. Oh yeah, for really sure. Like it. <laughs> yeah, I just pour it down the drain when I get home. Um, it's it's that's a funny line. That's that's fun. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, yeah, the the legality of uh, of raw milk is is a thing here in this country. Yeah. Well, we can you know we can talk about Virginia if you want. I'm in Virginia and raw milk is legal here if it's from a cow share. I think in Maryland it's completely illegal for human consumption. Um right. I think I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I I'm pretty sure it is here in Maryland. Um But you know, we can we can leave our discussion to the places where it is legal. Yeah, for sure in Pennsylvania. That's, um 
Yeah, the, the raw milk thing, it always it irks my mind when I when I but I don't I don't know how true some of these uh nutrition fact sites are as far as um the nutrition profile of raw milk, but I feel like don't you uh is there a difference between pasteurized and raw milk? There's an unbelievable difference between pasteurized milk and raw milk. Um the, the nutritional profile, first of all, might be a little different because most of the raw milk is being produced by farmers who keep their cows on pasture, not 100% of the time. So the actual nutritional content of the milk, the vitamins and minerals in the milk is going to be more than you're going to get from a mass produced farm where the cows are never eating grass. Um, the Most of the benefit of the raw milk comes from it still containing the live and active beneficial bacteria and enzymes that are in the milk that are destroyed by pasteurization. In fact, pasteuriz they, they measure pasteurization. They, it's successful when all of those things are dead. And this is why so many people right now have such uh, problems digesting or such allergies to milk because um, it's not necessarily milk itself that they're having a problem with. If the milk still contained the enzymes and bacteria within it that actually help you digest it, people would have much less of a problem. Now, that being said, there are people who, even if they drink the most pristine, cleanest, best quality raw milk, it still disagrees with them. For, for some reason, there might be something inherent to milk that just isn't helpful for some people. But there's a lot of people who find that if they have a lactose intolerance or some other issue with milk, if they find a really good clean source of raw milk that they trust, they can actually use that no problem. And not only no problem, but they find they actually feel much better, whether it's physically, psychologically, there's a lot of benefits to this stuff. Yeah. But you let's just let's just be careful. You <laughs> have to be careful about where you get it from. You want your raw milk to be inspected. You want it to be certified that you want to visit the farm, know your, know the farmer, know their practices. And of course, you get it from it is not legal in all states. Yeah, it's it's I, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I love raw milk, but let's let's, you know, keep people safe. I, I do. I do. I am. I am a raw, raw milk advocate and I feel like it's uh, it's 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 weird. It's oddly illegal is it because it's a food. And uh, for, I would say, the bulk of the country, a relatively benign food, uh, except excluding those people that are lactose intolerant. But it's like milk, of all things, and like a certain type of it is, is illegal. It's, it's so odd yeah. to me. What really puzzles me is... It's legal, like like you said, for example, in Pennsylvania, it's legal, but in Maryland, it's not. So is there something about the border between Pennsylvania and Maryland that turns milk poisonous? Or, or I mean, my question for the people that are keeping it illegal in Maryland, for example, would be, do you think the legislators in Pennsylvania are bad people? Do you think they are deliberately trying to harm consumers by keeping this product legal when you think it's totally dangerous? Like, what is it? Do you, are you... Are they lying that they think it's safe when it's not? Are they deliberately trying to hurt people? Because there must be some reason why it's legal in Pennsylvania, in Connecticut, in California, in New York. It's legal like all over the place except for a handful of states. Now, mm -hmm. 
in in a lot of the places where it's legal, you can't just get it at the grocery store. You the, the law might specify that you have to get it directly at the farm or through a CSA or something. But the bottom line is, it's it's there's some legal way to get this in many many states. And so, in the states where it's not legal, what's the issue? Because these other thousands, if not millions, of people all over the country are drinking it and they're fine. Yeah, for sure. I'm not. I'm not saying there's. I'm not saying there's no reason for concern. Like you don't want to drink raw milk from a dirty farm and from a farm that doesn't have a, a good, healthy. But this, it's just nuts. It, it was good enough for Thomas Jefferson. It was good enough for the founding fathers. It's not good enough for us. I mean, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't understand it. I did, but I will say this though. It's a uh, another thing that uh, you want to make sure that they they are pastured cows. Because I was um, listening, I forgot who it was that was talking again. Um, but like soy-fed cows, corn-fed cows, like raw milk from those cows, is like extremely toxic. I don't know that it's toxic, but it's certainly not going to be as nutritious as milk from from pastured cows. And, and so people don't get confused. Pastured means on pasture, out on the grassy hills. Pasteurization right. is when they heat the milk to kill all the organisms. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I'm. I'm glad. I'm so glad you said that because I know a lot of people yeah, are probably going to be like, get, they said they sound alike. Yeah. They really do. Um, but yeah. So we started talking before this podcast started. Um about low carbs low carb diets and um specifically your book on uh alzheimer's the Al alzheimer's antidote which is an ebook people can order it online right it's actually a, it's a real book now it's a print book they can get it on amazon but I, there's a kindle version so either way you like to read you can get it for sure i love it there we go um is that like is it through amazon that they can order it they can get it through Amazon. It should be available in, in brick and mortar stores like at Barnes and Noble, but I haven't checked. I'm not sure. I know they can get it on Amazon for sure. Yay. Yeah. Um, so, we, but we were talking about um, Alzheimer's um, disease and what's funny about it, when I first heard you talk about this book coming out, you referred to it as type three diabetes. Why do they, why do they call it type three diabetes? I don't get it. Good question. Yeah, great question. Um, so we know there's type one diabetes and there's type two diabetes. Scientists now call Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes. And the cool thing about that name is it automatically tells us there's at least some problem with glucose or carbohydrate, right? We know that diabetics have high blood sugar. Um, in Alzheimer's disease, the main thing going wrong seems to be that neurons, these special cells in affected parts of the brain lose the ability to get energy from glucose. Glucose comes from a lot of different things, but the main source of it in our diet is carbohydrate. Um, so basically the, the brain becomes unable to get energy and the brain cells kind of wither and atrophy and eventually they die. And the end result of this is memory loss, confusion, behavioral problems, all the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. I don't, you know, I don't want to get too technical, but that's other things going into this illness, but that's the main, most fundamental problem is that there's a, it's an energy crisis in the brain. Wow. And so, but, but, so there's a distinction between the type three diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, and I guess dementia 
from chronic uh uh traumatic brain injuries is is so is that the the fundamental difference the fact that it's like just trauma uh and dementia um good question so i think alzheimer's is a subtype of dementia and these other things like from a, a traumatic brain injury or repeat concussions from playing sports those things can also cause a form of dementia or co we call it cognitive impairment um they're not they don't have the same cause but the the end result is the same right you're you're thinking poor memory um impaired thinking personality changes behavior changes um I think the same type of intervention that I think is helpful for Alzheimer's is probably also helpful for TBI and some of these other dementias. Uh, I mean, I specialize in the Alzheimer's approach, but I think the same, the same diet and lifestyle strategies would probably work for all of them, at least to some degree. Now you were talking before the podcast about, uh, the, the, the military, not military experiments, but the, the, the type, the type of, uh, diet that they think may, you may be able to introduce to these people that suffer from uh, uh, traumatic brain injury or uh, dementia due to traumatic brain injuries. Um, what, what, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I, I do want to hear that. Yeah, sure. Um, I am a veteran myself. I was in the Air Force, so this is kind of of special interest to me too. Um, we've got all these veterans coming back with with traumatic brain injury, right, from from combat injuries, and um, that they're looking at is called a ketogenic diet. Um, people listening might have heard of it. It is a very very high fat, very low carbohydrate, uh, moderate protein diet. Um, for this is a ketogenic diet is like the low carb diet we talked about on crack. It's like taking low carb to the 10th degree. Um, and you, you have to kind of reduce protein intake because protein, too much protein will kind of put you toward glucose metabolism rather than fat metabolism. So this ketogenic diet totally reprograms the way your brain gets energy instead of getting energy mostly from glucose it's getting your whole body will get energy mostly from fats and ketones and the beautiful thing about um an alzheimer's brain and we think brains that are damaged by uh physical trauma like through a football injury or a combat injury is that even when the brain to get a lot of energy from glucose, it can still get energy from these molecules called ketones. And ketones are produced in your body when you eat very, very little carbohydrate. And you're, and you're running mostly on fat. They're kind of like a byproduct of your fat metabolism. And these ketones are like jet fuel, super fuel for your brain. Um, really really promising stuff they're doing they're doing some experiments it's it's limited it's kind of in its infancy but it's it's really promising especially considering there's really um there's very little help for these guys there's a lot of drugs there's a lot of pain medication but do anything to address the underlying you know inflammation in the brain the underlying injury inside the brain like all that stuff does is just manage the symptoms in the short term right yeah it's 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 a it's a complicated situation now the keto the ketogenic uh diet uh dom d'agostino he's um sort of like a leader i guess on the, the ketogenic frontier oh yeah he's i've i've 
met him. I'm, I'm actually impressed that you know his name. He's great. Yeah, Dom D'Agostino and uh, David Perlmutter are two of the mm-hmm. ones, the two names that kind of got linked together, even though David Perlmutter is more so like, uh, you know his book, Grain Brain. and, and uh, Yeah, he's more like the gluten and, uh, and the, yeah. Yeah, but Dom talks about this, but he talks about it... Um, in reference to kids that have uh, epileptic seizures and and things that things of that nature so it, that it kind of works to treat both no well the ketogenic diet was first used uh, almost 100 years ago for kids with epilepsy epilepsy that did not respond to any drugs they stumbled upon the fact that when these kids are on a ketogenic diet, their seizures either completely go away or they're very greatly improved. Um, And over time, you know, the ketogenic diet fell out of favor as anti-seizure drugs became more popular and more effective. But there's still right now a lot of people in whom those drugs don't work, and yet the ketogenic diet does work. Um, Over the the years, they've been looking at for other applications that are neurological in nature. Like epilepsy is a neurological disorder. So they're now looking at the same diet for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, ALS, uh, multiple sclerosis. They're doing really, really promising stuff. And so um, it did start for epilepsy, but that's like the tip of the iceberg. This is, there's so many other conditions that this is good for. Yeah. um... Oh. Hello? About hello? I th- I think so. Yeah. Oh wait. Maybe. Never mind. It's can all good. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear uh, you. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is I can perfect. He- I can That's- hear you. My it looks like my video went out, but my my internet connection is not the best here. Well, hey, we'll make do. As long as long as it gets <laughs> as long as we can still both hear each other talking, I think that's fine. Okay. But um yeah, I brought up David Perlmutter. Like have you you've read his book Brainmaker, right? Or have you? Not only have I read his book, he wrote the foreword for my book. I was gonna say that too. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. So, what type of uh, things are you guys sharing, or anything at all? Like, uh, I don't know exactly how well, it works as far as medical research is concerned. I um I've never actually met him in person. I I did record a podcast with him, but um. <laughs> In terms of the the research, I I just look at the medical journals, you know. But he's he's really doing so much to bring this information to the masses, which is great. I mean, there's not a lot of other people bringing this to the public, right? This this stuff does no good languishing in these like biochemical journals that nobody's going to read. You know, the people who really need this information the most are going to get it from people like Dr. Perlmutter, who are who are making this more available. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think he's I think he's one of the leaders in it especially now he's got so he's got his hand in so so many uh on so many in so many different sects of nutrition as far as like uh he definitely he has his own uh line of probiotic I know with the uh, Garden of Life um he's freaking got a pro uh prebi- prebiotic fiber uh a line of that with Garden of Life and now he's got these books and so many different other things and um but i think really what i wanted to get into was um he 
uh, initially, I believe in Grain Brain, he talks about uh, being on these diets or low carb to reverse diabetes. Now, you spoke about diabetes type 1 and 2, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it the same ketogenic protocol that they, you would use to, to help someone with the diabetes type 1 and type 2? Um, it depends. It depends on their individual situation. Low carb, yes. Not everybody needs to be as strict as ketogenic. Like a ketogenic diet is very strict. Um, Most people with type 2 diabetes especially can do really well just cutting way back on carbs, but they don't have to necessarily be ketogenic. Um, And in case anyone out there listening has type 1, I want to clarify The ketosis we're talking about, a a nutritional ketosis from a low-carbohydrate diet is very different from what's called diabetic ketoacidosis. That is a very harmful thing in type 1 diabetics when blood ketones and blood glucose are both out of control sky high. It's totally different from nutritional ketosis where your ketone levels are only very slightly elevated and your blood glucose is actually low. I just want to clarify that because people, especially in the type 1 community, they get really um, you know, worried when they hear ketosis, but I'm talking about nutritional ketosis, not diabetic ketoacidosis. And I, I know that's kind of like above the pay grade, but really like that, that needs to be made clear just in case there's anyone out there listening who's type 1. Yeah, for sure. That, I, I think that word scares people. Or is it just one well, word, diabetic ketoacidosis? That's yeah, because they, they hear keto, they hear keto and they assume ketoacidosis, which is a life-threatening, dangerous situation. But nutritional ketosis is a totally different thing. Hmm. But no, but to, to your point, yeah, um, a, a low-carbohydrate diet is really the number one intervention for type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Because if the main problem is that blood sugar is going very, very high, the number one easiest, most controllable aspect of this illness or, or this condition, I mean, type one is an autoimmune condition. The number one easiest and most important thing to do is not put more glucose into your body in the form of pasta and cereal and bread. Yeah. Those things are so good though. They are delicious. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not delicious, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, and you don't have to cut them out entirely, but you know, get a blood glucose meter and see what it's doing to you. And then you probably think twice about having it so much. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of what got me on the right track. Even though I love things like pasta, I love grilled cheese sandwiches. So bread is like, especially oh my God, hard. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. I make it out of that sourdough that you guys have up at the farm sometimes. Yeah. I was actually going to say like these days, now that this type of diet is becoming so much more popular, you can find low carb bread, you know, not just gluten-free, but low carb, like, like made with you know, coconut flour, almond flour, you can make it yourself. It's expensive, but it does exist. Like if you're the type of person that literally does not think you can survive without bread, there are ways to make low carb bread. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of, there's a, there's a few ways and I'm pretty sure people can, you can just probably Google it and, uh, and find recipes, but, oh yeah, there's tons, but back to this, the diabetes thing. Okay. So is this something where the lines is kind of fluid where if you have type one or type two diabetes, are you at a higher risk of uh, having Alzheimer's later on in life? Is that like a thing? Or- That's a really good question. That is definitely a thing. Um, I don't know about the type one. It is definitely a higher risk with type two diabetes, um, but not just type two diabetes. Like it's, I don't hope maybe the listeners out there know or or they don't, but um, type two diabetes 
is diagnosed almost solely by looking at your blood sugar, your blood glucose. Like, so if you go to the doctor's office, they take, they take a blood sample, they'll do your fasting blood glucose and something called your hemoglobin A1C. And that A1C is basically just like a, a three to four month average measurement of your blood sugar. So they both have to do with blood sugar, but there's a lot of people out there right now who are not overtly diabetic because their blood sugar and their A1C is normal, but they're only normal because their insulin levels are very, very high. And in Alzheimer's disease, it's not just high blood sugar that increases your risk. It's actually the high insulin. And um, nobody's really looking at insulin. You can have an insulin test done. It's not something you can do at home, like, like a home, you know, glucose meter. You have to get it done at the doctor's. And I think it should be a standard part of the routine blood work that gets done every time you go in. And it's not, if it what, was, it would be a game changer. Why isn't it? Well, what was the logic of not including it? I just think nobody, nobody knows how important it is just yet, but it's starting to spread. It's starting to become recognized in the medical community. It's just not there yet because I I'm telling you, there's like millions of people who are diabetic or I, we shouldn't say they're diabetic because it's diabetes is based solely off of blood glucose. What these people are, are insulin resistant or what we call hyperinsulinemic. Hyperinsulinemia is just a big fancy word. That means your insulin levels are too high mm. to hyperinsulinemia literally means too much insulin in the blood or high insulin in the blood. Um, and, and in those people, their blood sugar is totally normal. So they think they're fine. Their doctor thinks they're fine, but nobody realizes that the only thing keeping that blood sugar in check is this sky high insulin. And it's actually the insulin that's at the root of not only Alzheimer's, but if you have any females listening, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, if you're infertile, if you have PCOS, you must, must go on a low carb diet. Your insulin levels are high. Uh, erectile dysfunction, um, kidney problems, eyesight problems. Some of this can be spurred by glucose, but a lot of it is the high insulin and just nobody's having their levels measured. Wow. Infertility. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, that was one of the things that came up on my podcast with uh, Sally Fallon. We talked about like almost ad nauseum about like uh, uh, a lack of a nutrient dense diet. And, and not only that, but just not, it's just like an utter lack of knowing how to feed yourself. Cause I mean, Correct. before, before, yeah, before I went off to, to college and, and kind of started cooking on my own and like really was in control of my health and no one else is when I really start started to learn like foremost what's most important for my body and um it's a lot of first of all it's a lot I want to be clear it's a lot of uh, misinformation and you can get you can easily be told some uh some misleading I'll, I'll put it nicely some misleading information but it's um I feel like it's something that should be taught in schools. Like we just, we just aren't like, uh, we don't, we don't know how to take care of ourselves. If you don't know how to, if you don't know how to, what your body needs for fuel and, and how to properly like give yourself nutrients is it's a, it's like a fundamental part of life that we just like, we have no clue. It's like, we've been wandering this whole time. Uh, and I almost think back to like, before I figured out exactly what works for me, 
how to make myself feel the best I could, I can. Um, it, it made me wonder like, what was I doing before? And how was I getting by on it? Like uh cup of noodles, peanut butter, jelly sandwiches is like the college diet. And that's pretty much what everybody's living on these days. I, yeah, the bulk, I mean, a lot of people. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I wish they would teach it in schools, but my problem with that is they would probably teach a lot of, like you said, misinformation and misleading things. So I would almost rather they don't teach it in schools. Um, what they should teach is cooking, at least a basic life skill, how to take a chicken and put it in the oven so that it's delicious when you're done. Because otherwise, this is why people rely so much on takeout food and fast food, because we've lost the art of cooking. You know, we don't, we don't gather around the table anymore for a family meal or even, I mean, I live alone. I don't have kids and I'm not married, but I cook myself food. I won't, I don't stop at the McDonald's drive-thru. Not, you know, and I'm not judging, like there's a place for that. Not everyone can afford the best food, but um, that's just the basic care and feeding of ourselves, I think is a lost art, the, the art of, of cooking and preparing nutritious, wholesome food. But um you're right. I mean, I didn't. I didn't grow up a, a, a healthy, nutrition-conscious person. I mean, I ate the average American junk, and um, and it showed. And I, I didn't have good energy, and I never wanted to be outside running around. Um, but like you said, you know, you don't know how you got by. I think the human body is incredibly robust, and mm. it, we, it can take a licking and keep on ticking, as they say, right? Like it it will come back no matter what you throw at it, but that only lasts so long. You know, you're pretty young. I'm relatively young. Um, the longer somebody lives in that state of, of being compromised, the harder it is to reverse it and come out of it. So yeah. when you're young, like a lot of people think, oh, well, I, I never had to worry about this when I was little or when I was a kid. Well, you were young and your body could compensate. Your body was able to get over these hurdles you were throwing at it. But once you reach a certain age, forget it. The wheels are going to fall off the wagon and you're not going to be able to compensate. And that's when, you know, all of a sudden I gained 20 pounds. All of a sudden I had diabetes. All of a sudden, these things don't happen all of a sudden. They build for years and years until your body reaches the breaking point. Yeah. I, I had a fear that I think that's uh, what, what was one of the motivating factors for me was thinking that it could happen tomorrow. I'm like, now I'm aware of all of this. It's like, it's almost scarier than, uh, than being faced with being told that you have such and such disease. Like uh, the, 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 um, the urgency that comes, like when you, when you finally become aware to what these foods do and you know you've been keeping track of like what what you, your usual diet is you look back and you're like oh i'm so shocked like oh man i i went through that moment for for like months on in after uh after really like um cleaning up my diet i'm like oh man what what type of what have i done to myself like i don't know it's so weird and i don't want to come off as a uh i don't want to come off as um I don't want to rant on this too much, um, but well, that, I mean, that was. The good news is it's never too late. You're never too old. You're never too sick to do something better for yourself, mm -hmm. right? It's like I, I say, if, if somebody was a smoker and they smoked for 20 or 30 or 40 years and they're really sick and their lungs are in trouble, we wouldn't say, oh, well, you're really sick. You might as well keep smoking. No, the minute you take your last puff and you throw the pack away and you never buy another one, good things start to happen. The second you're done with your last cigarette, 
good things start to happen. Same thing with diet. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how sick you are. You're never too old and sick to help yourself not be sick. You can't, unfortunately, we can't make ourselves any younger, but, um, you know, nobody's ever too far gone. And I think, um, it, but it is so much easier, like you were saying, so much easier to prevent these things from happening in the first place than trying to deal with the aftermath once they're already there. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think, I think it's, it has to be some, some, well, because of the internet, man, I, I feel like it could give credence to, to, to some type of online workshop to be able to teach people that want to know, um, the unfortunate part about it is it's not accredited or it's not, it doesn't have like uh, the government seal of approval on it or wouldn't probably if it were teaching, you know, the, uh, the science backed, um, nutrient dense foods. If you, if you were to keep track of those and put them in, into a workshop and try to help someone learn exactly how to feed yourself, it, it probably wouldn't, it would be looked at as fringe because it, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily have uh, the officials backing it. You know what I'm right. saying? Because, yeah, that stuff does exist. There's tons of courses in this type of food that we're talking about, right? Higher fat, good quality animal products, fermented foods. Um, it's out there, but you have to find it. Um, and, and you're right. It certainly you, is not sanctioned by the official nutrition and government authorities. And, and there's a reason for that, you know, because we we're telling people to avoid the vast majority of the foods that the government tells us are best for us. Do you know any of those uh, courses or what, what, where anybody would be able to find those online at all? Um, I, would pro I would probably start with the Weston Price Foundation website. I think it's westonaprice.org, W-E-S-T-O-N-A-Price.org. It's not Western, it's Weston. It was his name. Um, they probably have a ton. You can get involved with your local chapter. I mean, other than that, there's a lot of individual people stuff. I mean, you, Sarah Pope, I think, Healthy Home Economist, Monica Carrado, mm -hmm. her simplybeingwell.com. Like there's a lot out there, but um, the, the Weston Price Foundation is probably the biggest single clearinghouse where you could find information about that. No matter, you know, whatever part of the country you live, there's a local chapter. Yeah. Um, the Weston A. Price uh, Foundation is, um, well, maybe I should just, Weston A. Price himself, the dentist, um, if anybody's not like familiar with him, his work at all, um, look him up, like incredibly profound book. Like I think I had to like be, uh, order that book from uh, like a library somewhere in Georgia in order to get my hands on it. Um, but like reading it, it totally turned my life around. Um, when I read the book, I had just been told that I had was 13 cavities wow. in my mouth. Yeah. Um, a couple of which they wanted to operate on that day. They were telling me that it was like really close to being a root canal or a situation where um, I need a root canal, which is a surprise to me because like I, I didn't feel anything in my face. I had no no uh, uh tooth pain not, not a toothache no trouble falling asleep at all like uh the tooth is like was like totally intact too um but if you look at it from an angle or a certain angle you would see there was a there's a little bit of black on the tooth and also you could see that it, it was starting to uh so like the white shades you get like 
like white blotches on on your teeth. But anyway, um, I read his book, and after um, I want to say it wasn't that long, and I feel like it's something um, when 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 vitamin D is like plentiful, when the sun is out and everything, it makes the it makes it so much easier to recover. Like just period, whether it's uh, uh, an ankle injury or you're trying to grow back your teeth, um, it's it's is it, it, truly I don't know I'm not a scientist or anything, um, but the vitamin D like the summer and spring months like is so vital to recovery is ridiculous. Yeah, I'm I'm not an expert in vitamin D, but certainly vitamin D is really important for um for the immune system. So in terms of any type of injury or even minor trauma like a, a cut or like a, a you know a, a damaged tooth, I feel like there'd probably be a role for vitamin D in that. But I wonder, I mean, maybe you know, like because I'm I'm really not an expert in this area, but to me, I feel like there's probably other things about sunlight that we don't understand. Like it can't just be the vitamin D because you know you feel better when you're outside in the daylight. Even even on a cloudy day when you're still getting that full spectrum of natural light, I feel like it's like a natural antidepressant. You always feel better when you're outside. I I do anyway. Yeah, I so I've I like and I've noticed that more recently too. Yeah, and maybe it's the light, you know, that seasonal affective disorder thing. So like in the in the spring and summer when you get more sun sunlight and daylight. But I just wonder, I, I feel like there's probably a lot more that sunlight is doing to us that we don't understand yet. Yeah, I, I def yeah, I, I would have to agree with you, especially because I, I'm just uh, I'm I'm up here ranting about it and I, I don't know at all. But I feel there's there's a hunch that's in my I have something in my gut that's telling me that vitamin d maybe um well they call it a, a hormone anyway but regardless of that i do feel like it, it's a, it's extremely powerful and it may be a like a like you said a deeper spectrum to to, to what it's uh what it's doing in the body how it's interacting but um look this was this was fun i think we we uh we covered all of the topics i wanted to 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 talk to you about here on this podcast this particular one we got to do it again sometime yeah yeah let's uh we'll find like a focused topic to have next time but this is cool like like i said to all the listeners out there i mean i know you because you're a customer at the farm and i'm there once a week and i didn't even know you had a podcast till you told me yeah for sure <laughs> yeah i don't really uh <laughs> I, yeah i i don't know i don't tell many people about it unless they ask what i do um but yeah for sure look uh, let everybody know where they can find you on um the crazy crazy internet world Oh, good call. Thank you. Uh, so my book is The Alzheimer's Antidote, and you can find that on Amazon. Uh, there should be a hard copy and uh, Kindle available, but my blog and website is tuitnutrition.com. It's T-U-I-T nutrition.com. Um, I have a blog, and uh, I do work with clients. So um, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, but I also do uh, long-distance consultations with people all over on the phone or Skype. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're if you're feeling the slightest bit unhealthy under the weather at all, please do not hesitate to hit this lady up. She's yes, I I, I can only say good things about her. Um, I see you making moves on Twitter too, Miss Amy. Oh um, yes, I'm very <laughs> yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at Two It Nutrition. I'm very active on Twitter. Making making moves anyway. Uh, you guys know who I am. Uh, uh should have. Few more podcasts this week. Um, still trying to work that out, but definitely one more um, later on in the week. And I'll see you guys 
Peace. I'm out of here.